listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast, affectionately known as The Mog, an open forum and promotional outlet for budding artists and creatives from all across the Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Brad Cox, not necessarily affectionately known as anything other than Brad Cox, but I'm here all the same. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on The Mog. Friends, East Coastians, and country men and women of all ages, welcome to the Mog. As always, links for our guests will be made available in the description, and a song or some type of promotional feature will be tacked on to the end of each episode. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Capricost Books, Musicland, Black Eyed Susie's, Double Groove Brewing, Baltimore Decal Gal, and Reb Records. Remember to love local, support local, and to eat and drink local. Don't forget to use discount code Mog. Pod for a 10% discount at Capricost Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing one of Black Eyed Susie's legendary orange crushes and a killer lunch or dinner. Black Eyed Susie's has been supporting local for a long time. It's your one-stop spot for original and cover entertainment and an afternoon or evening out with friends on their rooftop deck. If you haven't heard, there's something very special about Double Groove Brewing. It's a melting pot of personalities, ages, loves, interests, and musical tastes. There are hippies, professionals, rockers, folk artists, friends and families here. Throw in the most delicious and satisfying craft beer on the planet and this place is complete magic. They are tireless supporters of the local talent. Stop by their location in Forest Hill for a pint and a night out with friends. Just announced, the Lords of 52nd Street, the ultimate Billy Joel band, is coming to the Amos Center on February 12th at 7 p.m. For tickets, just go to tickets.harford.edu. The Golden Dragon Acrobats are returning to the Amos Center on March 20th at 3 p.m. This unique Cirque Spectacular showcases traditional Chinese acrobats who dazzle with amazing feats of athleticism. For tickets, go to tickets.harford.edu. Also just announced, the Red Hot Chili Pipers are coming to the APG FCU Arena on March 8th at 7.30 p.m. The band's achievements have reached incredible heights with their groundbreaking fusion of traditional Scottish music and rock pop anthems, which they proudly call Bag Rock. Tickets are available at apgfcuarena.com. Today on the show, I'm sitting down with the other half of Thrill Killer, the time-traveling renegade Rex Razor, better known to the Baltimore music scene as Rob Bradley. Over the summer, I had the pleasure of sitting down with his guitarist, Sebastian Ochoa, but today I'm excited to be talking with the visionary himself, the future past renegade known to many as Power Rob. Rob is best known for his voice and ability to channel notes in the upper stratosphere, but there are a lot of sides of Rob Bradley that you may not know, his theater background, his workout regimen, and game gaming and how he makes it all work together. So hop into your phone booth and dial up yesterday because today we're sitting down with Mr. Rob Bradley of Megatronics, Thrill Killer and Power Rob. Rob, how you doing, buddy? Pretty good. How are you? Very good. Welcome to the Mouthful Graffiti Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I, I had my own wager going as to whether I was getting <laughs> Rob Bradley or Rex Razor tonight. So I wasn't 100% yeah. sure. 
Rex Razor usually has to end up uh, training in the gym for like four months before he comes out of hibernation again <laughs> for that to be possible. Now, have you done other podcasts? Uh, I was on Beyond Synth. That guy was really cool. A couple other ones, a Synthwave radio show from the UK. I uh, was host uh, Danny. I think his last name is Miles. Let me double check that. But he's really cool. I'm supposed to be in his show at some point in the next few weeks. But yeah, uh, I guess if you count Night Ride FM, but they're kind of more of a radio show. But I've I've been on their show a couple times. Uh, they're great. Absolute treat to work with. Well, you look like you know what you're doing. You got the microphone there, the headphones, you know, the green screen. In the event we're going to see any kind of like fun things behind you. Uh, best thing I could do, yeah, is um, <laughs> if we're on video today, I'd, I'd still have some of the effects from my live streaming I do. Okay. Uh, so if I if I really wanted to get uh, fancy with it, I could probably turn one or two of those things on. Uh, but maybe. So to give our viewers, streamers, and listeners a little bit of context, I was hoping you could maybe tell me a little bit about your musical journey. Where did all of this start for you? Was it in the formative years, like back in elementary school with the recorder? Were you a little bit of a late bloomer musically? Sometimes that's the case. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I mean, I always was a fan of music since I was a kid. Uh, I remember I got into um, rock music and whatnot with cassette tapes of Aerosmith, uh, Queen, uh, a lot of those guys. Uh, and then in middle school, I think it was like elementary school, then until middle school is when I started getting into like really collecting my favorite artists and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, I got into, uh, I was a really big fan of Bad Religion. Uh, I, okay. I was a just gigantic diehard of Greg Graffin and uh, the writing team behind that band. Um, I, I got every album they had. I listened to them pretty religiously, probably about sixth, seventh grade. Um, they just really wrote the book on how to write excellent hooks, even with like a, for instance, like a limited range. Like Greg doesn't necessarily have like the biggest range as a vocalist, but his tone and delivery are so fantastic that it's not really a big deal. Um, so I learned a lot about like what a good hook was listening to those guys, um, how to take complicated subject matters and making it interesting. Because you may have noticed yourself sometimes as a writer that. Sometimes we got to walk a fine line where like the, the more complicated the subject is, the harder it is to write a good hook around it. And this, those guys just could do it so seamlessly. Uh, even today, I find myself appreciating a lot of their work. So they were a big influence for a couple of years. Um, I then got into, you know, the more classic 80s metal bands. Uh, I was addicted to Kiss for a couple of years. I got every release possible, studied them a bunch. Uh, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. So like getting into it, appreciating music. Yeah, most I would say most of my childhood, but um, becoming a musician or vocalist, uh, I would say that was probably uh, probably sophomore year of high school. Uh, I, I, did, I had to take an elective and I did not want to do gym. And so right. uh, chorus was the only option I had, which I ended up finding that I liked. So probably junior year, I'm... I made a band. Uh, we really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, you know, considering your background, you're probably going to wince hearing how we recorded our first song. Uh, we recorded it. Most the vocals were recorded in one take in a living room on an SM58. Okay. Um, to give an idea of the level of quality we had back then. Um, so yeah, that we released some stuff, and it did not get the best reception. But to be honest, in some ways, I kind of needed that. Um, sure. And I, I, it motivated me to start seeking out coaches, and uh, it definitely humbled me a lot to. Um, really work on my voice as much as I could before I started putting songs out. Um, but it was around then I made uh, my first band, which actually, come to think of it, you're probably one of the few guys um, that I still interact with that probably has, that's actually performed with these guys, which was Aries years ago. Yeah. Uh, I made them, uh, we built the band in 2008. Uh, things weren't really working out, so I, I pulled the plug in it um, pretty quickly. 
And then I joined another band, power metal band. We played with a couple uh, bigger names. Um, we played with Stradivarius. So for those guys, uh, Pagan's Mind, uh, Doro. I learned a lot about what kind of not to do with those dudes. Probably the nice way I could put it. Like there was, there was a lot of the management. I, I definitely, we, we learned a lot of painful lessons. Uh, and I kind of took that and I went into Aries with, I guess, more of an, um, I guess, uh, a, a more appreciative outlook on venues, booking agents. Um, I always appreciate people that supported us. But after some of those uh, events, it, it just bolstered it further where it was like, you know, these people, anyone who comes to see you, they're doing it because they simply like to. They, no one has to come see you. So using that, those lessons, I rebuilt Aries, which um, actually, come to think of it, you, you're, we love the underground. You guys played uh, our last show we, ever. We, we played the, the, the Smash and Box show. That was when eventually we pulled the plug. That was it. Yeah, that we didn't know it until a little bit after, but yeah, that was our last time on stage together. Um, that was a cool show. You guys pulled yeah. out Queens right that night. You played another cover, I think. Yeah, we did uh, Def Leppard and we did Aerosmith. We did Love in an Elevator and we did oh, Photograph. Yeah, yeah. With rock and roll, like you were kind of talking about you growing up with these cassettes, the rock and roll is not always supported in the family. So, you know, were your parents supportive of your rock and roll aspirations or were they kind of like, no, we'd rather you go in another direction? That's a great question. For the most part, I would say they leaned on the side of disapproval. However, they did help every once in a while. Like, for instance, uh, uh, they did pay for vocal lessons uh, when I went to my first vocal coach. My dad was always pretty, he was, he's always been stubbornly supportive, uh, as best way to put it. He's just doggedly supportive of, of what I do. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. He's, he's just a very, yeah, just, it's very hard to shake his support. So that, that yeah, him, yeah. Uh, my mom, she was a bit more of the practical kind of business person of the family. Uh, as of the last few years, things have changed. I think that once she's seen me making money as a vocal coach, um, it's it, she's gotten a lot more supportive now, um, which has been nice. Uh, but overall, it's mixed bag. My grandma was definitely very supportive. Uh, she uh, she had. I remember she used to collect photos on Facebook. It was actually it was really cute. She would cut them out of like from printer paper and yeah. then put them in picture frames and stuff. I mean, just know she yeah, she was following on my, my Facebook page and stuff. So kind of a mixed bag yeah. for the whole family. One of the cool things that you do with your band and in the music is you bring the theatrical background that you actually have. A lot of people may not realize mm -hmm. and you bring that to the stage, some of the costuming and some of the elements that, you know, like Kiss would bring to the stage, for instance. So how did that all start? I think I asked Sebastian, like, were some of the outfits actually like in the back of the theater department where you worked or like, how did you kind of marry those two worlds? There's a, some really fun stories behind that, uh, behind that question. So in 2012, I got hit up by a buddy of mine and he said that there was a company in the area called the Baltimore Rock Opera Society. I had no idea it existed. Um, and so... I heard they were doing a power metal opera. And when I got into voice, that's at the time with my first coach, I really wanted to learn like power metal, like Hammerfall, Queensryche. Like that's what I busted my butt to learn. It's hard so, stuff. Yeah, that's, that's for me. Like I didn't have the ability to do any of that kind of stuff until I just applied myself for years. So when I heard about a power metal opera, um, my first reaction was, you know, a lot of us kind of know one another, the dudes that can, you know, kind of sing up there. So like when I heard there was auditions for that, I was like, is there like a giant army of us that I just didn't know? Like, I thought we all know each other. Like, right. It's like a tight network of guys. I was like, you know, I thought I we can count them on our hands. Like, There's not a lot of guys that can hit that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I showed up and um, my initial audition piece was going to be what I thought was one of the more um, kind of go-to power metal songs, which was Halloween's I Want Out. Like everyone and their mother had covered that song. And um 
listening to the auditions, I kind of noticed most people really weren't doing power metal. So I kind of toned it back and I, I did a Judas Priest, you got anything coming instead. I thought it was a, yeah. a little more, a little more vanilla. Um, and so I, I, again, I never really did much theater. So I wasn't expecting much. In fact, um, the only thing I knew about the plot was it was set in Asgard. And so I wanted to be Loki. That's all I cared about. I was like, I don't, I don't know what Loki's doing, but I want Loki. So like, I showed up. I have a Punisher t-shirt. Like I try to dress the part. Like, you know, I'm in this fancy theater and stuff and I got a biker jacket, you know, and everything. And um, my girlfriend at the time was an actress as well. So she auditioned. I almost didn't go. She had convinced me to do it. And um, I, so I go in and again, I really want Loki. I don't know who the characters are. I don't know who the lead is. Yeah. So I, I, I do a yarn, I think, coming. Uh, they asked me to do a high note or do a scream. I was like, yeah, I mean, like, a, you know, like I asked which kind, you know, like a, a, a vocal fry scream, like a high one. And she's like, high one. Okay. Or they were like, high one. So I did that and everything. And I walked out. It was a very short audition. I thought I didn't get anything. And so I, I get a call back the next day. It's for a character called Carr. Uh, so I, I, I had no idea. I, got, I, I thought Carr was like a bit part. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, whatever. So like, I, I just want to be part of it. So yeah. I... I read the script and I find out my character was mute for the first half of the, of the, uh, of the opera. And oh. I didn't look much further into it. So I just assumed it was like some background parts. I'm like venting to my girlfriend. I'm like, why, who's, you know, I want Loki is what, who's car. And so <laughs> I, I read for car. They send me in for like two minutes. They send me out again. So I'm thinking I didn't get anything. And then my girlfriend gets an email. Cause those who audition actually get to see the castles and everything. And she says, I got in. And I was like, what do you mean? How'd you know that quickly? Cause I just literally asked her on, on the phone. She's like, boom. Yeah, you got in. And so she says, oh, cause you're at the top. And I was like, who did I get? And she's like, car. And I'm like, who, who's car? You know, so like, I'm like frustrated. I'm like, who's this car guy? And so I'm, I go to the cold reading and I find out my guy's the lead. And I was like, oh, whoops. You know, <laughs> quickly, quickly hits me. And I'm like, okay, this is different. I yeah, thought I would just. that's baptism by fire. You're going to have to get right in there then. Oh, yeah. It There's was no tiptoeing in. They and as I read the script, it got scarier and scarier. Um, it, it, there was a part we're reading through it. Um, my character is mute for the first half, but it's because he's a crippled son of Odin. Right at the end of the first act, uh, I get a spell cast on me by Hela, and it grants me a magical voice which can like raise the dead and like knock gods down and summon monsters. And I'm like, okay, wow, this is this is gonna get this is gonna get legit here. And once I read the final battle, it started kind of getting a little nervous because there was a part in the script. It says, uh, the, it says, quote, unquote, the Valkyries rip off Car's uh, armor, Car's armor, revealing the most epic leotard ever seen, which is like in the script. And I'm like, the what am I doing? Like, so like I'm I asked them, like, what's this leotard I've got to wear? You know, and they're they, the more I asked them questions, the crazier it got. And it was just like I, I just at this point I'm like eating nothing but you know, uh, green beans, chicken, and like nothing. Like I'm just trying to just cut weight because I'm just terrified of this thing. They're like, it's going to be gold. It's going to have lasers on it. And this is this, is this. And like, I'm like, oh my God. So I still thought, you know, because I, before I didn't know of them at the time, I thought this was not going to be, you know, like a massive event. I thought it'd be kind of like, you know, shows we're used to. You got to sell some pre-sales, you know, and, and you got, you know, help, you know, get, get the crowd there and all that. So I, uh, I thought, okay, you know, I, I asked him as the set was being built, I kind of saw it getting larger and larger and larger. I was like, you know, this is a really big theater for something that, you know, I just, I wasn't assuming it'd be filled, you know? Right. And, and so, uh, the week of we have, they finally finished, they finished the set and it's like this gigantic, massive sprawling set with like led lights everywhere for the sky. We have a custom built forest. That's like, it's movable and stuff by the cast and crew. We have giant monsters, even animatronic, uh, uh, wolf monster and everything. Like it's, it's completely tricked out. And I asked them, I was like, Hey, you want me to help you with some pre-sales? You know, it's just the name of the game around the time for me. And so they're like, if you want, I'm like, what do you mean if I want? 
You know, at that time, like I was just got done booking shows like BSM and stuff where like you have to, you know, we had to sell some tickets. And right. I, I was like, they said, if you want, I was like, you know, what do you mean? They're like, oh, we already sold out. And this is like, you know, we, we still got time before the show, like a couple, couple weeks. I'm like, so it's dawning upon me. I'm like, this whole theater, like this whole big thing is sold out. Like, really? And so um, opening night happens. I see people like around the block, just like lines oh, wow. of people. It's, it's, it's a, this, is, this is an event. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not leading this thing. Holy crap. So opening night happens, uh, completely crazy event. We had to do it seven times. We did three nights in the first weekend. I mean, three nights in the second weekend, but we had sold so many tickets. We then added a midnight show after our Saturday 8 p.m. show, which then in three days also sold out. So this was like just gangbusters. Everybody was freaking out over this show. It's called uh, Vahela. And um, after that, I started getting yanked into other rock operas. It was kind of like this like rock opera renaissance around here. I got hit up by a guy named Andrew Bogman. And he headed Landless Theater Company. Uh, he pulled me in for uh, a show called Frankenstein. It was uh, this progressive metal retelling of the Mary Shelley novel. I got pulled into a two-year-long rock opera called 1814, which was um, what if a heavy metal dude basically told the story of the Battle of Baltimore. And so it was like my guy was the evil British admiral based off Rob Halford. And so that was absolute treat being the bad guy. I was very like WWF kind of bad guy wrestler, you yeah. know, mixed with super villain for me, but I got yanked into tons of them. I did a uh, prog metal Sweeney Tide. I did that for two years. Um, I know I, I did two other ones too. Uh, the big, the craziest ones are probably these two called convergence Maximus. Um, I got an email from the, the, the rock opera society, their acronym. It's, it's great. It's called the bros. Uh, so I get a bros email and um, <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And, I get a rosy one. They're like, hey, man, PNC Bank hit us up. Uh, they want to throw a grant at us to do a show with the concert artists of Baltimore. I look it up. I'm like, oh, my God, the symphony. This is like the symphony. Holy crap. Like, uh, so, yeah, what, what's entailed? You know, there's like an opera choir stuff with them. And they're like, yeah, we want you to do your stuff from Vahela, you know, for the finale. Are you in? And I was like, yeah, as long as I get to work with that symphony. I mean, this is a completely different from, you know, a rock band. Yeah. So, uh, I remember I showed up and... I remember I, I asked him initially because I was like, hey, what's the costume? Because if it's I, I called the leotard that thing. And I'm like, if it's that thing again, you know, I need to know ahead of time because I got to start cutting weight. Like, I'm, I'm not wearing that thing again until it's time to cut weight again. I'm, I've, I do like my bad food. So, but if I have to lose it, I will. And so they're like, oh, you get to wear whatever you want. So I put together this kind of Yngwie outfit, you know, like a red biker jacket. I got the uh, poofy shirt from uh, one of my other operas. And so I show up. Uh, I, I'm filling in for one guy for one of his songs and then I'm doing the finale. And so we, I do the first song, no problem. Second song, this, it just doesn't work right. The, the symphony's off time. Uh, everything's not working. So I thought, okay, what's well, just our first run? You know, we're going to get it right in a second. Well, they're a union and it was nine o'clock. We only got that first 10 second part of the song to run everything. And it was completely not right. And so they just get up and leave. And I look at the, one of the guys in the cast, I'm like, is when's the next time I get to see those guys tomorrow? Oh, opening night. Oh, okay. I'm assuming we're sold out. He's like, yeah, of course we are. I guess I'm winging it. And so um, that was one of those epic things I did, but also one of those terrifying things. Because I'm backstage. I'm in my outfit and everything. And they, they gave me this sword from their first opera. It's called the Grundlehammer. It's this giant laser guitar sword. It's ridiculous. And so they hand me, here, Rob, hold this when you go up there. And I'm like, you know, lights are shooting me off of me and stuff backstage. Like, I'm all already nervous. And I'm like, okay, great. So I can't sneak up there because I we haven't really weren't over my cue very much either. So I'm like trying to figure out and peek around this corner. I'll you know, see the people over there, you know, terrified. So now I'm already super nervous. I got like a Red Bull. I'm just trying to like get jazzed up to knock this one song out. And um, the costume designer walks up to me and she goes, Rob, what are you wearing? And I'm like, what do you mean what am I wearing? And they, as I knew what that meant, that meant they wanted me right. to wear that, wear that thing else. again. They wanted me to wear the damn leotard again. 
And so she's got she's got in her hand. I look at her. And I'm like, no, it's really panicking because I'm just I'm not in the hell of shape at this time. I'm not ready for this. So like, um, I, I looked at the artist director. I'm like, you tell her I'm not wearing that thing right now. I've got other things to worry about. But we made it work. Figured I figured out the pocket with the symphony yeah. and all that. It worked out really well. They were, I think it's partially because of how good they were as musicians. But uh, they had me do it again two years later at uh, Light City, and uh, it was at the War Memorial. And that was uh, it was pretty funny because I had two stipulations. I said I'll do it under these two conditions. One, and they're like, before you say anything, yes, you get to work with the symphony. Okay, thank God. Two. Uh, am I wearing that thing because I have time? Like, nope, we have something else for you. All right, cool. Then I'm in. You got it. I'm I'm totally good for this. Yeah, throw, give me, suit me up with another laser sword. I'm ready. Um, and so a lot of those hookups, um, you're right. They 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 helped out with uh, the thrill killer stuff. Um, I got I, I got a there was a post in this bros group I'm in, and it said uh, this one costume company called Trokia. They make professional Broadway level costumes and they had a warehouse full of 80s, like really well like made sci-fi costumes they had to get rid of, just a warehouse full of them. And so I'm I have Sebastian. I'm like, yo, you still have your truck? And he's like, Yeah, I need you to come to this place in Glen Burnie right now. We I sit the mother load. And so like all of the outfits in the music films were because of that one lucky break. We just had we still have a whole like gigantic cache of these trochia costumes. Um yeah. That was just dumb luck. I don't even know how much money that would have cost, but that uh, the setting for Thrill Killer Three that was the war memorial from the Second Symphony show. Uh, I asked the bros, "Hey, do you have a hook up there still?" And luckily, they they were nice enough to uh, give me uh, an email, and those guys had us in there. And uh, that was uh, th- that one. The director uh, he played Loki in Valhalla. Um, the judge or the 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 chief was the judge in uh sweeney todd we just got done playing a couple uh, two summers together uh i i knew that when it was time to go time cop i told the band we need the irascible police chief and i know a guy like we have to get the angry police chief and yeah he was awesome but a lot of that if i think more about it like it's mostly yeah guys i've just bumped into in these crazy events uh i'm not even a gigantic theater guy um i i when I got asked to do Sweeney Todd, my reaction was apparently very heritable, or it was pretty much heresy what I said. They were like, hey, do you want to do Sweeney Todd? And I said, yeah, am I the Johnny Depp guy? Like, that's just how much I know about these things. Right. And so um, the, the, they, thankfully, they liked me, and they, they paused. They're like, uh, you're not the Johnny Depp guy, Rob. <laughs> so, like, that was me doing right. They're like, you know, like, you know, we're talking to Sondheim about this show. He's actually been, you know, tel- sending us telegrams. I'm, like, on Google, who's, who's Sondheim? Oh, he's a big deal. Oh, that's the writer. <clears throat> yeah, that's awesome. I, that's, yeah, I knew who Sondheim was. That's really cool. You know, that's just me on a typical show where I'm, like, Googling, like, you know, what's this part? Uh, I work in the cultural arts department at Hartford Community College. Yeah. And within the first week, the company director took me upstairs to the prop closet. And it was just like rows and rows and rows of really cool jackets and costumes and clothing. And I think it may be for some people, maybe even the missing link. If they come to a show, like they may not know exactly where you're coming from. I did like right away. I was like, OK, I kind of get it now. You come to the defense of poor vocal performances from some of these like legendary guys like David yes. Lee Roth, even Vince Neil. And as a singer myself, I appreciate it, actually, because we all have those regrettable evenings, you know, where it's like, man, things just didn't go the way I wanted to or my voice wasn't cooperating. Why do you do that? Uh, it's a great question. A couple reasons. First, I've gotten more aggressive about defending kind of off nights for um 
Well, the first reason why, sometimes when we had these performances that aren't that great, a lot of the people that judge them very harshly may not be judging them because they are necessarily as bad as we might think. Um, I, I just kind of got tired over the years. Every time we saw a Super Bowl performance, um, most people were so easily deceived by fakery that we're now in a position where the moment somebody sings actually live, you right. know, with all the bumps and boils that a live performance has, people, they're so conditioned to hear, you know, studio perfect vocals yeah. that they start lambasting it, but they don't realize what they're doing to live performing. That by being this ultra aggressive, the moment somebody sings remotely live, like for instance, um, there was a, a Maroon 5 performance in the Super Bowl. This is when I really started getting tired of it. And I listened to it. I'm like, you know, the guy's jumping up and down. He's playing guitar at the same time. And I'm like, you know, for all things considered, this really is not that bad. Like, it's, you know, he's, it's a, he's in motion. You know, he's, he's, it's not going to be perfect if you're right. that engaged. And again, like, I would rather have a very imperfect performance than, for instance, most, like most of the other ones people like a lot. Like, um, uh, I, I, made an, I did an experiment when I saw that one. I decided to go to the 1991 or I think it was 92 uh, Super Bowl performance, and I looked at the it was Michael Jackson, and mm-hmm. you know I like I like Michael, you know, big fan of his stuff. But I knew that performance was not remotely live. I knew all of it was completely lip synced. But I knew if I went to the comments, I'd see tons of armchair vocalists saying this is what the Broom Five guys should have done. And it's like, oh, not sing at all. Like, is that right. where we are now? We shouldn't sing live. So that's part of it. Uh, it's also because one of the things I specialized in, I didn't realize I would, but I, I found myself working with a lot of students through their anxiety, you know, and right. you, you may have seen this too as a vocalist that you, when somebody, especially early on, if they have something nasty to say about your voice, that will follow you. Like that's not something that's easy to let go, especially in your more formative years. Yeah, yeah. As some, somebody who's dealt with that, it's tough, you know, it motivated me to work a lot of myself, but I just noticed that it, it's, it's almost like this thing where when people start, you know, crapping on a vocalist, it's almost like it makes them feel powerful or good because it's, a lot of times those people that are negative about singing, they don't know what they're negative about. Um, for instance, like one of the people I kind of gave a bit of a, uh, some crap to was Adele. And it's not because I think she's a bad singer inherently. It's just that she'll have largely imperfect performances that just go under the radar, like not studio perfect like everyone seems to want. Everyone's fine about that. But then somebody who has as at, an as imperfect or even probably a little better performance gets completely crapped on. So where's our standards for judging vocalists this harshly? Either don't be so judgmental at all yeah. or at least be concise about your judgments because then it makes you wonder, you know, if people are going to attack you for something that really might not be your fault or even isn't that bad, why sing live then? And that's where I think we're headed. We're like, if we could get away with fakery then and people don't notice it, but if you start doing it authentically and you get attacked for it, what is the point? And I guess that's the, that frustration is what comes out. I wouldn't like us to get to that point. And people don't realize how easily they're fooled by trickery these days. Yeah. Are there any rock vocalists out there that have pretty bad technique that you're still drawn to? Yeah. Uh, I got to think, like, um, I brought before, like, I wouldn't say it's bad technique per se, but uh, my favorite singer that's not, like, technically dazzling is probably still Greg Graffin. Um, pitch is really good. You know, his tone is fantastic. But what's most important is he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really, have, if I were to like be very forgiving, I would I would still not be surprised if his voice was inside of three octaves. But it's still a fantastic sound that comes out. He knows exactly how to use his voice where he needs to. Um, so he was probably my favorite of all of them. There's also, um, there's so, just something about the singer of Rage. Uh, he's a German band. Um, definitely doesn't have a, great technique but the way his voice just works with the music i just happen to i just like it a lot so if i made a list 
of my favorite singers versus my list of the ones I find most technically impressive. They may, some might have overlap. Those two, yeah, those are two that come to mind pretty quick. Yeah. We're going to get into some of the fun questions here because that's always part of the show. Sure. But you love the 80s aesthetic. And I grew up with the 80s and it was a great time to be alive. What is it about the 80s that you're so drawn to? There definitely was a lot of competition back then. Yes. Um, definitely a lot of lot, lot of stuff that's definitely keep, tough to keep up with. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I definitely noticed this being, being in Synthwave. Uh, I think, for instance, a lot of singers in Synthwave are trying to, at this point, they're gravitating towards like traditional 80s pop. But the problem is... I think a lot of people underestimate the fact that the singers, like you can emulate an 80s pop song pretty well with the right producer. But to emulate the singers, you know, these guys that did it back in the 80s, they weren't doing it to be an 80s synthwave singer. These were the best singers of their era. Yeah. And so to emulate that is is a whole other animal. Um, but I guess a combination of things. I think one of the things about the 80s was um, a good way to put the music in the, in the style and everything was it was very unapologetic. It It, it didn't really try to rein very much in uh it, it you know a lot of the, the the loudness and everything uh i think it, it hit like a kind of almost like a tipping point where like it, it was like after the fact we had all these different uh eras that focused more on again like reining reining things in where with the 80s like it, it was always about excess like there was yes. it was always about celebrating you know celebrating coloring ce- celebrating you know lighting everything about it was i think it was for for a lot of ways, I think it's like we had, we hit a point with technology where it was advanced enough where people could you know create or play with colors and styles and stuff almost to the level that they would just kind of want to off the bat. Versus like for instance, like the '60s, we had to compensate a lot between instrument choices, you know, lack of synthesizers and uh, effects and all that. So where I think that it, we hit kind of a point where if this makes sense, we could almost create what we wanted to as artists in the eighties. And this is the loudest we wanted to be. But then after that fact, I think that people kind of got either overwhelmed by it or they just wanted something different. And of course, uh, when you want to do something different against something that loud, you do the complete gigantic opposite, which is now everything has to be muted, has to be, you know, uh, quieter. And so I think at this point, it, it also could be a response to the past probably 20 years of aesthetic. Um, I've noticed that the last two decades are probably the the first two decades of my life where I really can't notice much of an aesthetic. Probably the last 15 years where there's not really an identifiable aesthetic to the last few years. So how do we get around that? Well, we pick the loudest era. And that might be part of it too. It's it just it, it was so fun. People were not afraid, like, you know, people were not afraid of of, for instance, like, you know, guys wearing pink, purple, things like that, you know, loud colors. So yeah. I'm sure that's definitely part of it. Getting into the fun questions. You're into gaming. You actually repurposed the Power Glove, I believe. What are some of your favorite Nintendo games from the early era, like the 80s era? Goodness. Um, I can't even tell you how exciting it was to get Super Mario Brothers with the original NES, the 1984 or whatever it was. Yeah, it's a good, good game. Uh, the ones I play, like... The ones I can sit down and play for a longer time uh, from the NES era are probably going to be the Mega Man games. All-time favorite is probably six. I also am a gigantic fan of the soundtrack of Mega Man. Uh, again, most people sleep on six. Of any of the ones I played the most as a kid, it was probably six. And then I find myself as a writer even. Like, there's there's songs, like little melodies and stuff that after I write, I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of, you know, little Mega Man they got in there. Um, oh, I just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Um I, you know, it's, for years, I thought I didn't know that um, 
Rockman, which was the Japanese name for Mega Man. I thought it was because of like, you know, rocks, you know, but then I found out he was called Rockman because of the music. Like they want to make a game where the music was almost its own character. And that's part of why I think I really enjoy the music so much because uh, yeah. everything started making sense. You know, his sister's role, his, his rival's bass and the dog's treble. It was like, OK, I, I get that now. But yeah, NES, Mega Man 1 through 6 and mainly 6. How about favorite 80s movie? Now, if anybody looks at the artwork that goes with this episode, it's almost a happy mix of like Back to the Future and Beverly Hills Cop. So like mm-hmm. if Marty McFly went to the future, realized he was going to be a time traveling agent and then assumed a role in 2022. So are these some of your favorite movies or is it just kind of part of like, like we were saying, the aesthetic you were pulling together? Uh, great question. Uh, I would say if I had to just off the cuff talk about movies I liked a lot from the 80s, uh, I used to watch Scarface a lot. Really? Uh, I love Scarface. Uh, I, it's, it's, I, I love it's the awesome. aesthetic of it. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. The soundtrack, too. Um, a very underrated soundtrack. Push the Limits, fantastic song. Um, I, I, there was actually a funny thread I was in about, about Tony Montana recently where somebody said... Uh, people are missing the point when they idolize Tony Montana. And I came in, I was like, I full, I agree. He's a terrible person, but I got to admit, I just kind of like the fact he has a cool house and he knows how to dress really well. Right. Like that's, that's, that's what I like about Tony. Every, almost everything else. Yeah. It's pretty despicable. Uh, Rambo first blood part two, even though the first one's a better, yeah, it's a better movie. Uh, I find number two is just, just so much, just unadulterated fun. Uh, it's, it's, you don't have to think too hard. Not a lot of plot gets in the way of that film. Uh, that's why I appreciate it. Rocky four Megatronics just did a cover of no easy way out. Burning heart is, yeah. Put that on the back burner. Burning heart was a great one. Robbie actually, uh, the other half, Dark Rob, he brought up um, doing a cover from Rocky four. And I first said, I was like, all right, first off, I think everybody wanted to do, but I said, I think it was Sweetest Victory was the one where like there's something in the second half of it where the singer just starts cutting loose. And I was like, if we're going to do a song that I would do that one just because that would be something to sink our teeth into. That guy was awesome. Or number two, I said, if we're going to do one that's popular, yeah, Burning Heart's up there. But if you want people that are going to like be like, holy crap, you're doing that song? No easy way out. Like people, that's like the biggest montage song they got there. You know, but yeah, uh, Rocky Four is fantastic. Again, is it the most... Uh, it does it have the most depth in terms of its writing? No. If you look at the movie, it's only about 85 minutes. It doesn't even make it to an hour and a half. It's just like three montages, three fights, maybe, maybe two fights, maybe three if you count the one with Apollo in the very beginning. But it's just yeah, it's everything you would want with none of the other stuff. But it, like you said, not a lot of depth, but still exactly what we wanted in the 80s. Yeah, it's exactly what it needs to be. And I think that's one of the great things about Stallone. He may not have the mo- most well-reviewed movies at times, but listening to him talk, like the, what makes his his movies do so well is he knows what he's good at. He knows what he can deliver well, and he knows what people are looking for. Um, yeah, is is it Casablanca? Not at all. But is it exactly sometimes what I want to see? You bet. And there's nothing else like it. So that's the way I view a lot of those films. Uh, animated uh, if I were to make that a category, uh, Transformers 1986. The visuals and the soundtrack make up for the fact that the plot is paper thin. But that's if I want to watch something deep, you know, those movies exist. We yeah, watched this, this, Prime this. die in the theater, man. That was a oh, yeah. traumatic time for us. That was rough. Yeah. But yeah, those are probably some of my choices. I know I'm going to kick myself and probably about a day when I know I missed a handful of them. But off the top of my head, I'd say those ones. 
So back in the 80s, as a rock and roll artist, getting signed, that was like the thing. Like some label, they were going to fine you. You were going to get like handed a contract and you were going to become a rock star. That's the way we all kind of fantasized about it being. But that's not the way the music industry is now. If there was one thing you could change about the industry, would it be going back to like that kind of mindset where rock and roll is in the forefront? There are actual scouts out there, agents looking for new talent or is this accessibility factor? Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we can get more of our music out there. I suppose that's kind of the question that all, all musicians have had for the past 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, if I were to give my two cents about it, if I you know could magically change things, I am very not much not a fan of the streaming platform, like the kind of uh, money we make off streaming platforms, basically. Uh, the whole model... There are benefits to it, like the whole playlist thing and whatnot, but you know, artists are completely ripped off uh, for our work. Uh, we have a cover, I should probably pull the stats up right now. Uh, we have a cover of Burning in the Third Degree uh, that's done quite well from Terminator 1. Nice. We get some pretty good paychecks from it, but we're talking like an entire month. I don't know. If we're lucky, we maybe get 100 bucks. And I'll give you, let me pull up the number though. So, like, for that kind of play count, we got. Okay, here we go. Total streams. That's so, uh, Megatronics, right? Yeah. So for every month, we're at about 10,000 plays. And so for that, that's what, like 50 bucks. So it's just, and that's like, that's, it's, it's enough for us to pay for our own studio time. You know, we save up and, you know, we, we reinvest every time we're in the band. But um, it's just the whole model. It's, you know, the fact that there's a guy that's a multi-billionaire that runs the company and his whole company is just taking advantage of artists. It's pretty gross, but unfortunately it has become a necessity. I've always had a problem with Spotify. Um, it's why it took thrill killer so long to get on Spotify because I, I just, I didn't like the fact they're ripping off artists so terribly. And so we eventually had to begrudgingly put our catalog on there and promote it. But, um, if I could change anything, this pathetic amount of money, uh, a couple, you know, yeah. fractions of a cent per play is just not going to cut it. I want to get into your background. I know uh, Thrill Killer pretty well, but when did the Megatronics project start and what was the catalyst for that? I know Power Rob even came after that, but yeah. Megatronics is interesting to me. One, the production is fantastic. If you haven't you. heard it, definitely check it out. Uh, great tones. Great production. Who's handling the guitar work? His nickname is Dark Rob, a.k.a. Rob Potesman, Robbie Whiplash. Okay. Uh, he's the guy that writes the music. Uh, in that one, it's a very straightforward partnership. Uh, I write my lyrics, vocal, vocal melodies. He writes the music, and it's uh, every once in a while, it gives some insight on the music. It's not that often. It's usually yeah. just he sends me tracks and does all the production. And he also does a ton of other work, too. You know, uh, all the merchandise, you know, almost everything Megatronics does. Uh, he pretty much handles the bulk of that stuff. So, yeah, he he definitely is a hardworking guy. Um, but, yeah, so we started, um, I think we believe, I think it was 2018. And uh, we were in the middle of filming Thrill Killer 2. And he, Robbie, was the villain, uh, Snide, in that one. Uh-huh. And you notice, we, we were both heading in kind of an 80s direction. I just got done, uh, you know, I wrote the stuff for The King of 1984, for Moto. You know, we were really getting into that aesthetic. And so he said he had a synthwave song. Around that time, I had just got done collaborating with this um, Italian synthwave guy, Daniel Lipolito. And so with him, it was very chill, you know, smooth stuff. And 
I kind of liked that for a change. I thought, you know, hey, maybe I'll do some synthwave stuff. As you know, it's very easy to sing, so I could do this with with the flutes. Oh, great! Like this is this yeah. is so laid back. Um, and so he said he had some he wanted to work with me on. So I thought it was that stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, send me as much as you want. If this blows up, I can do concerts where I just have to sing, you know, five notes all night. That's awesome. So I was like, yeah, yeah. And then he sent me the music, and it was what became our first song, "I Fight Time." And it was this epic synthwave metal song, and I was like, okay, never mind. This is going to need something flashy. So we recorded that just to see what would happen. And it ended up winning uh, this competition called the Recall FM Battle of the Producers 2018 event. With like We were against tons of different producers and stuff, and uh, we won with just one song. Like I, you know, I, I usually hate competitions with bands. You may have bumped into a few yourself in the past, but usually they're a waste of time because it ends up making you get too obsessed with it. You know, I find myself, I, if I get involved in something, I want to win it. So I'll, you know, obsess and obsess and obsess and obsess. And then it just, it just creates an unhealthy environment. But like, so I just sent, we just set the song in and I was like, Robbie, go ahead and knock yourself out. If we win, great. If not, I'm not going to, you know, lose any sleep over it. And then we win, which is one tune. And so I was like, okay, maybe awesome. there's, yeah, there's something here, you know? And so people started really losing, losing their minds about I Fight Time. And after that, we decided to make a follow-up, which was our second song. It spoke to us and that got a lot of good rece- reception. And so we decided to do a cover of Burning in the Third Degree. And that ex- just completely exploded. I mean, at this point, Burning in the Third Degree on just Spotify is at 248,000 plays. Wow. And so it's just exploding. That was when we realized we've already do something, you know, we're going to have to like, you know, actually do like show shows for this stuff. And um, that's, that's how all that started. And uh, now we're, we're about to play with some of the biggest names in in Dark Synth, which was um, Dance with the Dead and Magic Sword. Magic Sword, their music was in uh, Thor Ragnarok. Now, both uh, bands actually played Magfest recently. Yeah, that was a very. Uh, it was a. It was kind of like almost like a homecoming thing from for my for my music for a change for for a second there because I've never done both bands in the same event, so it was really awesome. What uh, is Magfest to somebody that's never participated? It stands for Music and Gaming Fest. I would say it's more of a gamer festival, if anything. But there's multiple stages. It takes place in the Gaylord um, uh, oh, Hotel. Man, that's awesome. It's a beautiful place. Unless you but want yeah. an eight dollar beer, then it's not so awesome. Yeah, a little bit different. Yeah, prices. I'll admit. Yeah, they could have been a little bit cheaper. We were lucky. I, I guess I forgot about that because when we did it last time, those guys in Magfest were so cool. They actually covered food for us. So I did. I was like, oh man, you're right. That the food is a little bit on the high side. Um, but yeah, Magfest is awesome. They have other events too. We Thrill Killers played um, Mag Stock, which was a video music and gaming camping event. They actually had an entire campground. They gave us our own lodge and everything. We played outdoors and stuff. Um, we did Mag Labs, which just took place in Virginia, another hotel. Um, but yeah, we did we did both. Uh, we did Megatronics on Friday, and then we did uh, Thrill Killer on Saturday. Um, it was great. The crowd crowd was wonderful, and more importantly, we did it safely. Uh, we made sure COVID policies were very tight. Uh, we've kept an eye on the positivity rate. And right now, even like, because at this point, Omicron's got a three-day uh, incubation period. We've kept an eye on it. The, the entire event has had a less, like, still less than 1% positivity rate uh, because we were so tight about making sure this was as safe as possible. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I was happy about the, the, the crowd was fantastic. The, the night was really good. But the only thing I'm most proud of was the fact that we have, we have kept in a 10,000-person event uh, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think we got more than like 120 cases and those, like some of them might've even been like not at the show. So in a place that tightly packed together, we all pulled together and made sure it was really safe. So that was probably the best aspect yeah. of mag in my opinion. 
with the interview, I wanted to cover theater. I wanted yeah. to cover gaming and I wanted to cover your music. And I think we've done that. And it's kind of the backdrop to your mindset and these projects. What is your ultimate goal, musically speaking? With Thrill Killer, I, that was the first time I decided to be a writer. Uh, in Aries, again, I, I was just, I did my lyrics and stuff. But around the time I built Thrill Killer, I, I stumbled upon some of the old demos Michael Jackson did. Because I'm not really much of a musician. I can play some keyboards. I used to it took a couple guitar lessons when I was younger, but um, mainly a lot of the ideas I have are just too complicated for me to to, to do on the piano sometimes. Sure. So I found his the demos of MJ, and he would just sing everything to a click track. And so I decided to try it. I was like, okay, well, how about I just do that? So I would sing the bass, you know, do the the drums with him and all that. And I showed it to the guitar player I brought over, and um, it worked. Uh, Passion Killer was the first song we released. It did quite well. Yeah, into deep. Yeah. You know, I, that's and I made that the way we built the music for a while. And um, I tried to make music that I would want to hear. Uh, so I always wanted things that like you really weren't sure if you were going to headbang to some of the songs or, or or dance to it. And I figured that that sweet spot of melody and rhythm yeah. would keep me interested. Uh, and, and so that's that's kind of how I do with a lot of a lot of the writing for Thrill Killer, where, you know, I try to I try to just write stuff where like it's so it's so hooky and so infectious and delivered just precisely the way I want it to be delivered that it just catches your attention and keeps you there. It, it tries not to be pretentious enough where it, it assumes the listeners who's going to sit through the entire song. Sometimes long songs are great, but for the throw code, it's very precise. Um, I was in bands before where excess was a big issue where you'd have like, you know, super long guitar solos or oh. super complicated stuff, all those things. And so I remember what throw Killer was like, we're going to make sure everything's exactly what it needs to be. So uh, definitely that, well, it seems like you're trying to take people to another place. I wasn't sure if like you were really trying to like get people to separate from their real life and, and give them that escape. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, like I, I, I especially with the videos um, I, I, for me, like I started noticing a lot of tropes in music videos. And I figured that if we're going to go out of the way to make a high definition video and go through this process, I wanted to make it with some something that it justified the video experience. Where like if you're you're not just watching a video to justify a song we released to come out where it's just us playing. Right. It's like, you want to have, you know, you want, I'd rather have the question of what is the more uh, significant part of this experience? Is it the video? Is it the music? Um, so that was definitely part of the, the visual aspect of Thrill Killer. Um, and overall as a singer, um, you know, I got into singing because initially I want to be a great rock singer, but then I picked up a studio job years ago where I was re I'd recreate vocals for a remix company. And I learned a lot about like the tiny minute things these top singers would do that you didn't notice you liked, but your ear did. And so I got obsessed with that. I started getting into those things. So Thrill Killer, there's stuff I sneak into a lot of performances that kind of almost like tickle that part of your ear a bit. Yeah. So that's part of what I've been obsessing about. It is interesting, those idiosyncrasies that singers do. One being Sebastian Bach is a good example, actually, yeah. because you notice like at the end of all of his phrases, he holds the breath. So it's just it's not a tone or a note or anything. It's just like, and he interesting. He like, yeah. yeah, he does a lot of that, which makes you kind of like, I don't know, you feel a little bit more part of each line. Yeah, that's I have to look. I, I've actually never listened too much to that one, uh, to that trick, because I, I do have a couple of his albums. I, I, I'm now I'm curious. I have to go listen to that after yeah. we're done. Uh, pick that up. That's interesting. Um but yeah, no, I, I, I was, I noticed a lot of stuff like, you know, for instance, why a certain syllable elicits a reaction from a listener. You know, like one of my favorite things I investigated was, um, there's a demo Michael Jackson did of Smooth Criminal, and it was not called that initially. It was called Al Capone, and really? the Al Capone, yeah, Al Capone was actually a much more 
cohesive story. It actually was about a specific person, obviously, and it was much more of a of a complete experience, uh, at least in terms of the writing. However, Smooth Criminal, even though it made less sense, he knew that the way the syllables worked and the way everything kind of came together was the better choice. Yeah. And he actually hit by a uh, smooth Al Capone isn't going to work. Right. It, it's, it's just doesn't quite slap slap as well as it did with, uh, yeah. And what's interesting too, is when you're, when we do lyrics and stuff, one of the, in my opinion, one of the kind of cardinal rules that he broke during smooth criminal was he rhymed the same phrase several times in the, in yes. the, in the, in the, in the hook, you know, and you were okay, that part there, but he knew it worked. And that's like that extra kind of X factor as a writer that I find so fascinating that, he had something that abided by typical lyric rules, but he just knew with his intuition, his background in music and everything, he knew the one that actually broke those rules was the far better choice. And it's now it's this iconic set of notes that is impossible to miss. Uh, that stuff, that that's what I've been injecting slowly into all my work. Well, I love what you're doing, Rob. I've always loved what you're doing. Where can people find and hear the music? So uh, Thrill Killer, we're on, we're on a bunch of platforms, youtube.com slash Thrill Killer Music. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Thrill Killer Music. Um, also, you can find us on, on uh, Twitter at Thrill Killer X. It doesn't quite have the length to put music on there, so we have to do Thrill Killer X. Uh, Megatronics is Megatronics Music on Twitter. Uh, same thing on Instagram. Uh, I believe it's Megatronics official on YouTube. Um, you can find us on all those platforms as well. And for Power Rob, you can find me on Power Rob Music on uh, Facebook. Same handle on Twitter. Same handle on Instagram. I also do live streaming on Power Rob official from time to time. Probably once, twice a week. I just play a lot of old school games and stuff and talk about what's going on with music and everything. Um, but that should be it. I also do give, uh, do teach vocal lessons for those who may be interested. I teach at uh, robbradley.net. It's my main website. It's got all my information on there. So for those looking to sign up, uh, my schedule's getting pretty packed right now, but I do offer a free trial lesson to anybody who's interested. Yeah. And even if you think you know what you're doing, it still benefits you to have somebody else tell you, hey, you know, you can work on this, you can work on that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Is there anything else you have on the horizon you wanted to bring up? Megatronics, we're opening for two really big Synthwave acts uh, in, at Autobar on April, I think it's 22nd. Uh, Dance with the Dead Magic Swords. As, as I hinted earlier, um, Magic Sword, those are the guys on the Thor Ragnarok soundtrack. Like these dudes inspired uh, Dark Rob a ton to actually make the music that he sent over to me to, to make for Megatronics. So, uh, we're extremely excited for this one. This is a massive event. We actually got the first person to buy a ticket overseas. They're flying from England over to see this event on the 22nd. We are pulling out the stops for this event. Uh, it's going to be a really big night. Uh, uh, Thrill Killer has a couple events we're currently waiting on. Uh, there is a really big one in March where it's looking good for right now. Uh, I'm really stoked about that one. But you can't and talk about it. Not yet. Um, okay. It's down to us and another band. And okay. so I can't... Um, don't want to jump the gun, but it's looking good. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, I've there's a new single that uh, is being pushed. Actually, officially going to be pushed in about probably a month, but it is officially out of my album. Uh, it's called Gloria. It's a song I made with uh, Elevate the Sky from California. Uh, it's, a, it's a power ballad we made. Uh, it's on my my debut album, which came out in November, called Monster Man, um, and. Uh, we're going to be pushing that one really hard next month. So that'll be out or it's out, but it'll be like an official single single uh, by next month. So anyone else want to get in, gets an early peek at it. Uh, feel free to swing by one of my channels. And I think that's all the stuff coming up right now. I would encourage you to trademark thrill killer at, or Megatronics. Yeah. 
just to, don't ever run into that pitfall. I always throw that in there. I appreciate you coming on to the show, Rob. It's, it's a My good pleasure. time. Our brother. Thank you. My pleasure. Gotta steal the show